You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Colonel Jim Cox, uh, retired from the U.S. Army, and our topic today will be uh, military and defense attachés, a topic I don't believe we've ever really addressed here at the International Spy Museum. Uh, Colonel Cox uh, went to West Point, was commissioned as a lieutenant in 1971, and spent the bulk of his career in various ways, shapes, and forms as a military intelligence officer. Along the way, he became what's called a Soviet-Russian Foreign Area Officer, or FAO. You may hear that acronym uh, as we talk here a little bit today. And he retired from the U.S. Army in 2002 after 31 long years of service. Not so long, actually. Not so long. You, you were having fun along the way? Uh, yep. Absolutely. All right. Glad to hear it. Uh, so, uh, Colonel Cox, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, can you tell me just a little bit about, uh, before we jump into the attachés directly, a lot of military attachés uh, are foreign area officers. Can you just briefly tell us what is a foreign area officer? That's a very important program in the U.S. Army, and I, I understand some of the other services have something similar. Um, I agree. It's a, it is a very important program. It it's, uh, speaks very highly of my service to the U.S. Army that uh, ever since World War II, they created this program to train regional specialists, uh, and there are regional specialists for virtually every region in the world. I mean, there are Korean foreign area officers, Japanese, Chinese. Uh, I was a Russian, uh, Soviet and Russian foreign area officer. There are Middle East guys, African guys, Latin American, every region of the world. And it, it really, I think, grew out of the recognition at the end of World War II that we, the United States had become a global power, and we needed... Um, people who were more highly trained in the languages and cultures of all these regions around the world to help us, uh, help the nation, and help the U.S. military uh, in, its, in its work, in security work. So weren't just uh, specialists in, you know, combat or uh, maybe on the intelligence side and the technical systems, but actually understood sort of the, the human beings uh, against whom we fight and in the context of which we, we, the U.S. military operates. That's exactly right. One of the, the things is I've thought a lot about this over the years because I loved the program so much and spent, the, as you mentioned, the bulk of my career in it, uh, was that we really, in a manner of speaking, we were translators. 
in, in the sense of, not in the literal sense of, well, and sometimes in the literal sense of, of translating somebody's, what somebody wanted to say into Russian if we were talking to a Russian, but more in the sense of cultural and, and uh, military art, military science, I was a represent, as when I was an attache, I was representing the, the senior leadership of the U.S. Army to my host nation's army. And uh, likewise, I was the point of contact for my host nation's army back to the U.S. Army. So, I'm, and when, uh, because of the cultural differences and uh, in many cases the uh, kind of military science differences and the structure and functioning of our militaries, the differences in those, the attache is the guy who kind of translates that so that his American uh, bosses back in Washington can understand what it is that the host nation is asking for uh, or what, what it is that is on their mind. So he's a translator and almost a military diplomat, if I hear what you're saying about attaches. Yes, that's exactly right. Right. We, uh, our, our arms, if you will, or more often than not, were uh, the quality of our foreign language abilities. Um, that, that was how we armed ourselves in our jobs. One of the other things that I don't want to focus on this, just maybe just one or two minutes, one of the other things that, that I imagine was important in your preparation to be a military attache in Moscow, in Kazakhstan, and then in Poland, and we'll, we'll talk uh, about all of those in the course of this conversation, but you served for a time in something called the U.S. Military Liaison Mission in Germany. Do you just real briefly want to say a little bit about what that was, sort of what you guys were doing, and, and when you were there that set you up for, for Moscow and some of your adventures it, it was the, the best job that's ever been created, and it will never happen again. Uh, again, at, at the end of World War II, we had uh, divided up Germany into zones of occupation, and Austria as well, but that's kind of a separate subject. We'll just talk Germany now. And um, you had basically the total collapse or absence of a, of a central civilian government in Germany in the early years after the war, but you had all these military forces bumping up against each other. So you needed... The Brits, the French, the Americans, Americans, the Soviets. And the Soviets, right, the four occupying powers. So um, there's... Uh, it's in, by about 1946-47, it became aware, it became generally known to all sides that we needed to, to create a more formal structure and uh, for resolving differences and just the, the normal sort of day-to-day -day liaison in the military liaison, U.S. military liaison mission, as well as the French, British, and Soviet missions were created about during that period. And throughout the cold, the, and the missions lasted until the, the day before German unification uh, in 1990, a year after the, the um, in October of 1990, the year after the wall came down. And during that period, um, there was always liaison work being done, bona fide, above board, uh, helping each other out. And that kind of ebbed and flowed with, with the, um, the political relations between the nations at, uh, over the, those decades. But we uh, and the other, the, the Brits, the Americans, the French, we, we very quickly realized that we had essentially um, a, a, a license uh, we, were, it, we had essentially diplomatic immunity, although we wore uniforms, we, wore, uh, very, we drove very marked cars, there was nothing covert about it, it was very overt, but we had access to Eastern Germany. And Eastern Germany uh, housed the, the most modern and the greatest concentration of Soviet forces anywhere in the world. And when new equipment was fielded to the Soviet forces, it always came to East Germany first. So here we were allowed to essentially play in their backyard. 
uh, drive around. We had access on the roads. And of course, then we, uh, we transitioned into a classified, at the time, uh, mission, which was conducting uh, photo and video reconnaissance of their preparations for war. Uh, we were ground-level satellites, I used to say. And um, we had access that, uh, that no other system and no other people had. It, it was a, truly an anomaly of the post-World War II era, and it, and it, it went away uh, once uh, Germany reunified. But in that uh, period there, it was really, a, um, as I said, the most exciting job that ever was created. And I know that um, here at the Spy Museum, you, you've done a uh, podcast with uh, Major General Roland LaJoy, who, who, who spoke very clearly about the, the operations and, and the functioning of the mission, and, and that would be, that's a, that was a great uh, experience. I would, yeah, I would encourage listeners to refer to that. I think that may have been put out in 2011, if I recall correctly. And I'd just say that uh, as we sit here discussing the U.S. military liaison mission, uh, Colonel Cox's face is beaming, and General LaJoy's face was beaming every moment that he spoke about it. Clearly, everybody really enjoyed the, working in that organization. All right, so you have a background in military intelligence. You're a Soviet-slash-Russian foreign area officer. You've served in the U.S. military liaison mission in Germany. And then in 1991, you're assigned uh, as assistant army attache in Moscow. Um, so when do you arrive in Moscow, exactly? I, I arrived. I, um, there's a lot I remember about my early months in Moscow, as, as we'll get to. But I arrived very early in June in 1991. And um, the, it was still the Soviet Union, of course. And, but uh, the Eastern Europe, the Warsaw Pact was in, was in free fall. The Soviets were, at this time were withdrawing their forces out of uh, eastern Germany, um, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, um, Poland, back into the Soviet Union. The strategic withdrawal, if you will, of Soviet forces from Europe was, was underway. Um, President Gorbachev had been in power already for uh, six years, and uh, Glasnost and Perestroika uh, was, were well underway. There were rumblings about um, whether or not, uh, how, how, how much longer this sort of periods of openness and, and um, this kind of um, little window of opportunity here might, might stay open or, or what the future might hold. So it was a, it was a time of great interest and, and uh, just a little bit of anxiety. You, you must have felt like you were in the right place at the right <clears throat> time, though. It was like my whole life had brought me to this. Everything I had done and everything I had hoped for brought me to that point when I arrived in Moscow. Now, as assistant army attaché, just so we can understand how this is all organized, you would have reported to the army attaché, yes, um, who then in turn worked for the defense attaché who represented all the services. So there would have been attachés from the army, the air force, the navy, and I guess sort of a subordinate to the navy, the marines, right? Yes. So there's an entire... Can you give us just a rough, a rough sense of the size of that uh, defense attaché's office or DAO? Over the years, that office had... Um Fluctuated between 14 and 15 officers, but it's, that was that was the size of it, roughly, with uh, four um, officers in each of the uh, four assistant attaches for each of the services. Then a principal attaché, an army attaché, naval attaché, an air attaché, and then the defense attaché. And, and Moscow was one of the few countries where um, we had a flag officer, a general officer, as the defense attaché. And that was a one-star general. One-star general, right. And the defense attaché's <coughs> office reports back to the Defense Intelligence Agency, yes? That's correct. So you're, there's, there's, there's a lot of this, uh, at least in some countries, where the attaché's are collecting intelligence, not just being military diplomats, right? 
It depends entirely on the country and okay. the relations you have with that country, and that's a, that's a great question because uh, a tremendous transformation actually occurred during the two years I was in, uh, first the Soviet Union and then the Russian Federation. Um, in a country, the country I was assigned to, the Soviet Union, uh, we didn't have much in the way of a cooperative relationship going, so our primary focus was exactly on that intelligence collection and reporting. So now when we say intelligence collection, just to scale this, and we probably can't get too much into detail here, but you, we don't mean, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, doing the kinds of things that the CIA might have been doing of, of, of spotting and assessing and recruiting and paying people to, to steal secrets for us, do we? We mean more, more overt, maybe subtle, but more overt, less illegal uh, sorts of methods of intelligence collection, yes? You're absolutely right. First of all, uh, I used to... Uh, People use the term spy fairly loosely, um, and they would we, refer We've to, noticed that here at the museum. <laughs> we, uh, people would refer to military attaches as spies, and it would all, always make me bristle because we, I used to tell uh, Russians that we were the, the one group of people, they knew exactly who we were. We were openly declared military officers. We wore uniforms when senior people like the president or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs came on a visit. Uh, and at Fourth of July receptions and things like that, I mean, it, it, we we were for sure. Uh, there was no question about who we were and what we did. And um, military attaches the world over, every nation are overt collectors and reporters. There's there's nothing particularly spooky or or sensitive about that. Every nation does it. Every nation understands that all other nations do it. So um, so to go more to the question of what our activities were. Um, I would use the term and have used the term that our, our collection activities in Moscow in the, in the days of the Soviet Union, I, I would refer to as fairly pedestrian activities and in kind of multiple senses of the word. For instance, I'll give you, an, we would travel to a city where there would be military bases and um, we would um, go to a hotel and then uh, figure out what bus route or tram route would go by a military facility. And oftentimes we would, we would take the bus ver instead of a taxi because a bus you sit higher. And you could stand in a bus and you could actually then look over the wall of a facility. And again, it was, it's almost this ground level satellite sort of image. We, we could, whereas we had overhead satellites looking to see what they could see, they're looking down, we were looking sideways, and we could tell if the sheds and the garages actually had equipment parked in them or if they were empty. And so in that sense, it was really not very sexy. It was not really uh, very uh, uh, exciting, but it, in the end, it was another piece in the mosaic about what's going on with the Soviet military and with the Soviet Union. Now, I think you told me when we spoke on the phone uh, a few weeks ago that when you first arrived in Moscow, your immediate duties were actually taken up a lot of it with handling VIP visitors, but then that, that changed. Who? Well, the, uh, when I first arrived, um, I, I made an, an operational trip or two, and then um, the defense attache, my big boss, uh, took me aside and said, I'm, uh, you're, I'm grounding you, but not in a teenager sense of the word. I'm, I'm, I want you to plan... Um, from our end, the visit of uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Colin Powell, is coming on a counterpart visit. That meant that the Soviet chief of the general staff was inviting General Powell over to the Soviet Union on an official visit, and uh, he was going to host him the entire visit. This uh, visit was going to take place at the end of July in 1991, so I spent essentially about six weeks working with uh, an officer in the Joint Staff every night on the telephone 
working out the details and then um, interfacing with Russian counterparts in Moscow to plan the, the various events and, and venues and things like that for General Powell's visit. This was uh, an extremely, uh, I mean, not, not much needs to be said about um, the, the, the joy of being around General Powell uh, and, and the uh, respect we all had for him. But to put this into more of a, <clears throat> of a context, this is just five months after the first Gulf War. And the world, not just America, but the entire world watched that war on CNN. And they saw what our equipment was able to do, and they saw the brilliant uh, operational, tactical and operational moves of the, of the uh, coalition forces, not just the U.S. military. So despite that, the fact that this coalition of forces routed an army, the Iraqi army, that was equipped and trained and um, structured like a Soviet force, General Powell arrived in Moscow with what I now think of as almost rock star status. It was unbelievable to see how Soviet officers would literally elbow each other out of the way to reach forward to shake his hand. I, I'd never seen anything like this before, and it was really just a, a, a tremendous joy to, to go with him across the country when he came for his visit. So you put General, General Powell eventually on a plane back to Washington, and not long thereafter came the morning of August 19th, 1991. What do you remember about that morning? Well, uh, we put General Powell on a plane at Vlad Vladivostok. He and his small delegation took off, went all the way across the Soviet Union, and the defense attache, uh, General Govan's wife, and I then got on the plane with the Soviet chief of the general staff to fly all the way back to Moscow. 10-hour flight with one refueling stop. I mean, that's how big that country is. And we arrived back in Moscow uh, about 4.30 or 5 o'clock one morning, and 4 o'clock that afternoon, President George H.W. Bush came for a summit. So we're, we're exhausted, jet-lagged, and now in the middle of a summit. So actually, before the 19th of August occurred, we also had a presidential summit. A couple, three days later, the uh, president... Uh, left town, and I was left with uh, a feeling of total exhaustion, being totally overwhelmed with a, a million reports I needed to write, and uh, completely behind in everything to include my, being around my family. On the morning of uh, Monday morning, the 19th of August, started like any other morning uh, in Moscow. Uh, I got up before. Uh, got myself shaved and dressed and got down to the dining room of, uh, and um, I lived on the embassy compound. Sat down with my cereal, my cup of coffee, and uh, all this was timed so that I would start my breakfast moments before the BBC 7 o'clock in the morning uh, news service in English to Moscow uh, would come on the air. That's where I would get my first news dump of the day. So uh, not knowing anything or suspecting anything, I sit down and the, and the reader on the BBC starts reading the news. And I don't remember anything about what he said because the topics he was talking about didn't particularly pertain to me. And I'm only half awake uh, eating my breakfast, really not even fully functional yet. And at some point he stopped reading the news. And I didn't even pick up on it at first. I only picked up on it when he started speaking again after some pause. And the words, I will never forget, he, he started off saying words like, mm, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to interrupt the news broadcast. Uh, I, 
um, at this time. I've been handed a special announcement. I'm going to read that uh, in lieu of the news. So at this point, I still don't know what, what's going on. So he starts reading the, the, um, the special announcement, and, and he uses words like this. He says, we understand that President Gorbachev has been removed from power for health reasons. Now, anybody who is a Soviet specialist knows that that's a euphemism for being forced out of power. And my, now I'm staring at the little shortwave radio. My eyes are bulging out of my head. And uh, the next sentence really lit me up. The next sentence was, and an emergency committee has taken over control of the country. Now, my apartment in the embassy compound was what is on the upper level. I had a clear view out my dining room window behind me of the Russian White House, the, the Russian Federation White House. Which is actually their Duma, their <coughs> Congress, not where the president is. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, that was Boris Yeltsin's office. Uh, and um, I shot around in my chair and looked over, and I couldn't see anything special going on there. Look normal out the window. No, but I knew that this was going to be a day totally different than whatever else I'd planned to do on this day. So I, I literally, I ran upstairs, uh, shook my wife awake, and quite honestly, like a military officer, I ordered her to stay on the embassy compound. That she, she and my daughters were not to leave the compound until I figured out what was going on and that Gorbachev had been removed from power. Something's going on. And then I don't know what. And, and with that, I grabbed my coat and I ran down to the embassy. Now, it's just moments after 7 o'clock, and embassies tend to open formally and officially at about 9 o'clock each morning. So I'm in the defense attache office, grab a couple of cameras, put them in a, like a little gym bag, because um, I didn't know what I was going to encounter on the street, but I was waiting for someone else to show up. And the first person to arrive was my boss, the Army attache, Colonel John Reppert, now Brigadier General, retired. Now, he had, he had just arrived in that position replacing General Govan just a couple of days no, before, hadn't no, he? No, no, no. Uh, he was the Army attache. Oh, the Army yes, attache. Okay. Right. Uh, so, and Colonel Reppert uh, didn't live on the embassy compound. He lived across town in, in an apartment. So when I heard the uh, lock open on the door and he walked in, I was so keyed up, I just assaulted him. I said, what did you see and go across town? And he looked at me like I was crazy. I said, I didn't see anything. What are you talking about? And I said, don't you know Gorbachev's been removed from power? There's an emergency committee. He says, I didn't see anything. And I said, come on, we have to go. Let's, let's go. So we made a sweep of the power ministries. So you got in your car and you drove around Moscow. We got in his car. He we got in his car. He, he drove. And your, I your boss drove you. And he drove me, and I became the U.S. military liaison mission tour officer again, uh, directing him uh, as you'll. Uh, we went and we, we checked the Ministry of Defense building, KGB headquarters, the Central Committee building, all the government buildings, the Kremlin, and there were absolutely no additional police, no military forces, nothing out of the ordinary. In fact, regular. Muscovites were just walking down the sidewalk, going to work, going to school, whatever. Uh, there was nothing out of the ordinary until we came back to the vicinity of the U.S. Embassy when we, when we noticed a military column, a column of military trucks coming by a road uh, right by the American Embassy. And that's where I became, uh, uh, I went back to, reverted to my time in East Germany, and I, I just ordered my boss, I said, go, and he went shooting down the street. And uh, I said, run the column. And he said, I said, just get next to the column and go faster than them. Let's look for anything out of the ordinary, any sort of signs, anything, soldiers who were armed, anything like that. And as we ran the column, um, 
at the the column stopped at a red light. Now I've seen a lot of military columns, Soviet military columns, and they've never stopped at red lights. They always have traffic regulators out, mm -hmm. uh, and that way uh, the drivers of the vehicles don't need to know. They don't they don't need to have a map. They don't need to know where they're going. They just go wherever the traffic regulators are pointing them. But these col this column stopped at the red light, and I thought that's really strange. And when the light turned green, a track vehicle, an armored vehicle, actually that was in the middle of this column of wheeled vehicles, turned, and we said that's not normal. And we went back to the embassy at that. They point. don't normally drive tracked vehicles through no, downtown Moscow, no, in other words. No. So we went back to the embassy, and, and um, the army attaché, who was very experienced Moscow hand. Uh, stayed to help the new defense attache, uh, who was a Navy admiral who had come in and replaced General Govan um, just uh, two days before. Um, so Colonel Ruppert coordinated the activities of the defense attache office, and I and, and my fellow assistants went out on the streets trying to figure out what was going on. Now, at some point or another, you, well, you were looking to answer the question, I think, of you know, was this coordinated? What was, what were the orders of the troops? What, what, what were they supposed to do? And at one point, I think you had a close encounter with some of them. Right. Um, the the key questions in my mind were, just because the military is deploying forces into Moscow doesn't necessarily mean it's a coup. It doesn't mean it, I, I don't know. It's not illegal activity necessarily. So the the questions in my mind was, who called the military into town? What is the military supposed to do when they get to town? And in short, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Because at this point, we, we don't know what's going on. You don't know much of anything. No, I don't point. know much of anything. So um, tanks were pulling up outside the Kremlin and facing away from the Kremlin um, as if they were defending it. But, but soldiers were kind of, once they parked their military vehicles, were just kind of standing around. It's like they didn't know what to do once they got to Moscow. So uh, a col I noticed up a, a, a street not far from the Russian White House, there were a column of trucks from an, uh, an airborne unit, a military, uh, an army airborne unit, were parked just nose to tail. And these were cargo trucks, and the flaps were down. I couldn't see anything uh, other than a, a group of young officers, uh, Russian officers, standing on the sidewalk. So I, of course, was in civilian clothes, because that's, that was the way my day, that was a normal uniform in the embassy, so I, I just walked up to them and in my best Russian asked them as politely as I could what was going on. And <clears throat> I was not surprised by their response. They turned and looked at me, no one said a word, and then they turned back to each other and ignored me until I went away. And I thought, well, if, this, if the shoe was on other feet, I would have done the same thing. But I decided that this was, this was my moment, and I walked down the column of trucks away from these, this group of officers and glanced over my shoulder uh, to see if they were paying attention to me, and they weren't. And I decided that, by God, I'm going to find out what's going on here. So I used what I considered to be uh, an age-old um, trick, uh, technique, which is all soldiers of all armies all complain about their chain of command. They all complain about officers. They all complain about hurry up and wait. So I decided using my Russian, and I learned how to swear in Russian, so I decided I was going to just go um, all in and, and try to figure out what was going on. I, and I stepped behind one of the trucks, and without even knowing what I was going to face, I climbed up on the tailgate and through the, uh, the, 
the tarp in, in the back, the, the canvas flap, I threw it over my back. And there I was in a white shirt and tie staring at 12 Russian soldiers with automatic weapons. They looked at me. They were more startled than I was, I think. And I This just, was probably not what they were expecting. No, not what they were <laughs> expecting. So since I had surprise, I took advantage of it. And I, I started in Russian, of course, swearing, complaining like a soldier would. I said, oh, I bet these officers got you up at, you know, early this morning, 3.30, 4 o'clock this morning, and you didn't have any, you don't have any idea what's going on. They put you in the trucks and they brought you to town and you're upset and, you know, and all of this. And these guys are just staring at me. Of course, there was a lot of profanity in that. I've cleaned this up. Uh, we, we appreciate but, it. <laughs> so they're just staring at me. And, I'm, and when you're looking at 12 soldiers with automatic weapons, and silence tends to, to get a second or two seems like a year or two. And I was about ready to, I was thinking to myself, this isn't working. Uh, I'm going to have to conduct an exit here. When one of the soldiers leaned forward and told me everything I wanted, he said, you are right. These blankety-blank officers got us up at 3.30 this morning and ran us out to the trucks and told us to get our weapons and get on the trucks. He says, we have no idea what's going on. We have no idea what we're here. We have, why we're here. We have no idea what we're supposed to do while we're here. And I tried to keep my jaw from falling open because it was everything I'd hoped to learn. And uh, so to... to conduct my exit, I said, oh, man, it's all in Russian, of course. Oh, man, that really sucks. I hope you guys have a nice day. And I very quickly climbed off the truck and got out, and I was shaking from the experience, but uh, I thought, okay, that's it. And uh, I knew that at that point that the military had been called in by the emergency committee and that they'd been ordered to come to Moscow, which, of course, any military officer, that, that's not an illegal order. But because of what would happen once they got to Moscow, they had not been told anything at that point. And um, so I knew, essentially, at that moment at least, who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. So did you then convey that back to Washington in a, in a cable? or Because intelligence is only useful if it gets to people who can you know, do something with it or, or use it to enhance their understanding. Exactly. Uh, and in, in fact, things were happening so fast that I don't believe a lot of cables were being sent to Washington. We had phone lines open to Washington, and people would literally give a verbal spot report. Uh, and there would be people on the other ends of the phone uh, writing it down, almost like a journal. And, uh, and then the word would get passed out. And that's the way we worked for about three days until the coup was finished. Um, so at what point did you, did you get to bed that night? And, and I assume, would it be a safe assumption that the defense attache office went on basically 24-hour operations, people out on the streets at all times? Or how did, how did you all uh, organize yourself? Well, you're right. We went on 24-hour operation, and um, I don't think I got any sleep until the second, after the second day. But we, we had absolutely no idea how long this would last. We had no idea what would happen 10 minutes from now, uh, it, it, that uh, clearly things were not going well early on in the coup. Uh, having studied coups at West Point, uh, mostly Latin American versions, I knew that this was the Russians were screwing this one up. That uh, this was this was not an, a, a standard coup format. Um, so what? Not knowing, and, and of course there was a tremendous amount of confusion among the in the. Uh, 
this emergency committee that had taken over about other duly elected uh, Soviet officials or duly constituted Soviet officials. Nobody knew what was going on. The, the, the residents of Moscow didn't know what was going on. So there was, there was just confusion everywhere. So what we did was um, the, um, we divided up uh, the clock into, into shifts, and uh, I decided uh, that if anything was going to happen, uh, it was going to happen in the wee hours of the night. So the air attache and I, um, as it turned out, volunteered for the 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock shift of literally walking around the Russian White House, which was the focal point of the, uh, the Russian military deployments in, um, at that time. And to keep ourselves awake, the air attache, uh, as we walked around, uh, expecting uh, an assault that could come at any time, against the Russian White House, he asked me, he said, okay, if you were in charge, how would you assault the Russian, how would you take down the Russian White House? Because it's right next to a river. There are big roads that approach it. So there's, there's three different ways, really. And then you could, you could land helicopters on the roof. And so to keep ourselves awake, we, we discussed the tactics and the various pros and cons of one way or another of taking down the Russian White House. And I said, basically, I think I would do a helicopter assault on the roof. That way, people who didn't want to get caught up in it would have a chance to flee out the bottom, and you would just work floor by floor down if you really had to um, seize control of that, of that building. And he, he alluded as to that's probably the best approach, that a river assault or a, a frontal assault on the building would just be a, a tremendous mess. But anyway, we were just entertaining ourselves, trying to, trying to stay awake, and we went off duty. Nothing happened, and uh, then the second day was one of it was really fish or cut bait time for the coup plotters here, and the, but it, but it, at this by the second day, the Russian military realized that essentially they were being played by the coup plotters, and they didn't want any part of this. So the the Russian airborne unit, some of whom I had uh, spoken to in the back of that truck, they had arrayed themselves around the Russian White House and then faced out to actually protect the Russian White House. So now you have the potential of um, some military not, some military forces could conceivably be attacking other military forces, and 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 that was a scene that the Russian commander said, "No, this is not going to happen." Now, at, at at this point, so we're in day two of the coup. At this point, are any of the Russian military folks, uh, officers, or enlisted, becoming more willing to to talk and and complain? I mean, you got you got one soldier to talk to you on day one, and. Uh, but by and large, if I understand you correctly, people were pretty tight-lipped. Were, were things starting to get a little looser as sort of a sense of, like, this is, this is all screwed up, uh, set in among the Russian military? You know, I think, uh, well, in my experience, the answer would be no. I didn't even try to speak. Mm. As I could see, but, but what had happened was, I mean, <clears throat> we had uh, civilians were now, ha had kind of uh, figured out what was going on. Uh, and... Um, People were coming up and putting flowers in the barrels of the machine guns on the, on the armored vehicles that were parked outside the Russian White House and begging the soldiers, giving them cigarettes and snacks and begging them not to shoot and, and things like that. So that, uh, it, it, I, I've, I sensed I, that, that there was a great deal of embarrassment on part of the Russian military, that they had been played, that they didn't want any part of this. But, of course, this is a military organization, so they respond to orders. They'd been ordered to town. And since then, nobody had ordered them to do anything. Uh, and so they just sat there and it, it, with the whole world watching them. And they were just 
hoping and waiting for an order to get out of town, which came on the morning of the third day. And is that when you knew that this whole thing had, had collapsed, or did you have a, any overt signs before that? Well, the... What did you see from your perspective? <clears throat> um, I think things were not going well from the, from the very first day when uh, President Yeltsin came out, the famous photo of him standing on the tank without any sort of protection. Uh, I was probably 10 feet away from him when he stood on the tank, and I, was, I, and I just cringed because I thought... This is in a coup. Somebody either has to die or somebody has to flee. And you think you thought he was going to get shot? And this is the moment where he's going to get shot. And and I was afraid <clears> that in the in the chaos, bullets would start flying everywhere. He wasn't shot, but it was the last time he appeared in public without any sort of protection. From then on, his his uh, bodyguards held a bulletproof vest in front of him and things like that, and he was some distance away from the crowd. But so from that really, from about mid morning on the nineteenth, I knew that th this this was not. On a standard format coup. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I can't help but but ask at this point, since you were you were you were there when Boris Yeltsin gave that famous speech on the tank. Are there are there published photographs of you in the crowd? Like there's Yeltsin, and down here is the assistant army attaché. No, it's this was this was no time for Hollywood. Okay, uh, I do have a photo of me standing in the streets of Moscow, taken by a good friend of mine, a Dutch attaché, who I just happened to run into. Uh, but the, uh, there was a f really hilarious moment in this otherwise very tense situation where just prior to Yeltsin coming out and standing on the tank and reading the, the uh, this is illegal uh, statement uh, urging Russians to, to resist this uh, coup attempt, a lady had emerged from the Russian White House carrying 50 or 100 copies of this Flyer. Now, the crowd was made up of diplomats and journalists uh, and who, who knows who else. But there was a, a huge number of journalists and television cameras and things like that that had flooded down to the White House. Everybody was desperate to figure out what was going on. And this middle-aged lady came out of the Russian White House thinking she was going to hand out flyers. Well, the crowd saw her, and we were so hungry for information, we surged toward her. She, I, I remember she screamed. She saw that everybody was was essentially attacking her. She she screamed and threw everything up in the air, all these flyers up in the air, and then fled back into the Russian White House. That started this free for all to get a copy of the uh, the statement, and uh, I got a copy. And before I knew it, somebody snatched it out of my hands and ran off. So I looked around. and I thought, once again, I am not going to be denied. And some poor Russian. Was was reading it, and I ran over, grabbed his, and then ran for about fifty yards to get away. So, that, and I'm reading it, and at that point, it was clear, confirmed what I'd learned from the the airborne soldiers and what I was able to just deduce from what I saw on the street. And a few minutes later, then it was when Yeltsin came out and stood on the tank and read it for the TV cameras in the world to see. A moment of um, defiance against the coup plotters. Any other? So the coup lasted three days before it finally definitively collapsed. Uh, and Gorbachev came back from his enforced uh, exile right. down in the Crimea, right. if I recall correctly. Yes. Any other big moments that stand out or uh, during that period? Well, actually, yes. The, the, the morning of the fourth day, the, the, the Russian... So the day forced, after it's over. The day after it's over. The, the, uh, the Russian military on day three had been ordered sometime in the morning. Uh, Moscow has a series of ring roads around it, and uh, they'd been ordered to get out beyond the outer ring road in any direction, just get out of town by 5 o'clock on the third day. So literally, forces were streaming in all directions out of town, like, like spokes on a wheel, 
trying to get outside to, to comply with their orders. And they were only too happy to go. And in fact, it got kind of a light moment, but our new ambassador, uh, Bob Strauss, uh, was arriving that day. He arrived in uh, the airport in Moscow and uh, was delayed considerably getting to the embassy because all these Russian army forces uh, streaming out and blocking the roads, taking all the lanes of the road, trying to get out of town to comply with their orders. What an environment. You know, wel welcome to Moscow, right. Mr. Ambassador. Right. So on the fourth day, the day after the coup, now, the, the Yeltsin and his supporters inside the Russian White House, you, you have to think kind of diabolically for a second. Just because it's announced that the coup is over and the military forces have left does not mean that a KGB special forces unit or somebody could not still assault. And in, and in some kind of perverted way of thinking, the perfect time to strike is when everybody's guard is down and they're all tired. So there was still a great deal of tension inside the Russian White House. And on the morning of the fourth day, uh, the uh, ambassador uh, had put out to every, everybody, call anybody you know, make any contact, the gloves are off, forget the old rules, talk to Russians, find out what's going on. We got it. This is a whole new world we woke up in. And I had a contact that from escorting General Powell, uh, I met a, a young military reformer who was on Yeltsin's staff, and I had his card. So I called and over to the Russian White House, and he was not there, but the, I explained who I was uh, to the lady who answered the phone. And she said, well, Major so-and-so is not here, but how would you like to talk to General so-and-so? And, -so? and I, I'm still kind of intimidated by this because I'd never spoken to a Russian general uh, other than escorting General Powell. And click, and the next thing I know, this Russian general's on the phone, and, and I introduced myself, and I said, I'd really like to talk to you. And he said, how soon can you get here? And I said, General, the American embassy is only a couple hundred meters away from the Russian White House. I can be there in 10 minutes. He said, make it 30 minutes and come to such and such an entrance, and I'll have somebody there to escort you. So I hung up the phone, again, kind of shaking. I thought, oh, this is going to be really great. And the new defense attache came with me. So we, it, we started working our way through the uh, barriers of uh, um, rebar and trash and stuff that the Russians had lined up around the White House in kind of a ad hoc way of building defenses to keep an assault force from getting. So we're climbing over stuff, getting around stuff, and we get to the entrance, and um, someone's there waiting for us. We introduce ourselves. We're just in civilian clothes, of course, but we introduce ourselves, and he goes, fine, follow me. So he takes us to an elevator in the Russian White House and punches a number, like four or six, and, and so we're going up in the elevator, and as the elevator gets to the right floor, of course, it kind of stops and bounces a little bit, like any elevator. And our Russian escort looks at me, because I'm standing closest to the door, and motions for me to go first. So I move to the doors. The doors open. And on the other side of the door, I'm greeted by a, a man wearing a, a suit and a flak jacket, a bulletproof vest over his suit, with an AK-47 in his hands, bloodshot eyes, and four days of growth of beard. And he brings his weapon down, and, and the, the barrel is literally right between my eyes. Because he, he doesn't know who's getting off the elevator. I threw up my hands. I mean, I just was totally startled by this. Threw up my hands and fell back into the elevator, grabbed the Russian and said, you go first, and threw him out of the elevator and, and, and tried to get control of myself before we went down to have this interview with this Russian general. But it was clear that they still felt very vulnerable on that day. 
And that was something I had not anticipated. Aside from being exhausted, they still felt very vulnerable. This concludes the first part of our interview with retired U.S. Army Colonel Jim Cox. Join us next time when Colonel Cox will talk about his experiences as a military attaché after the failure of the coup in Moscow in 1991. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.